0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be the host of the channel today. Today, we're going to be talking to Miley Arvin, who is the author of *Possessing Polynesians: The Science of Settler Colonial Whiteness in Hawaii and Oceania*. So, Miley, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So. Um, this book is v- very broad. It covers um, all over the world and a pretty long time period as well. Can you tell me how it is that you came to write this book? What is the story behind the book?
1: Sure. It's my pleasure. Um, yeah, so uh, my my book came about, it has a couple different origin stories. Um, I guess one of them is that I'm Native Hawaiian and um, I always grew up, learning or or trying to figure out um, all the issues around blood quantum that were manifest in my family. And um, my mom grew up on a a homestead in Waimanalo, Hawaii. And, um, you know, as I got older and um, started to understand the different restrictions about who can have a homestead, how it could be passed down and kind of saw all many of the ways that that put a lot of different pressures on my family um I just became really interested in the history of blood quantum as it affected Native Hawaiians um but yeah as I got into grad school um you know while I was in grad school Kehalani Kawanui's book Hawaiian Blood came out and that provides a really um important and crucial legal history of the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act and the ways that blood quantum and the 50% blood quantum requirement became attached to um, being able to lease a homestead in Hawaii. Um, but even even as that book has been really important to me, I, I was still left with a lot of questions about like where blood, blood quantum came from like intellectually or um, in, in the history of science. And so that's one way I came to, came to write this book is, um, kind of from a a deep, in some ways, deeply personal, um, reckoning with, with blood quantum issues. Um, but then also another genealogy is that I, in graduate school, one of my advisors was Denise De Silva. And, um, she was, she is a very accomplished, um, scholar of race and, um, her book, uh, towards an idea of rate towards a global idea of race, it uh, does a lot of excavation of European philosophy and, um, social science. And so it, it's, it's kind of through working with her and learning from her work, um, that, um, it made me kind of not dismiss some of these, some of the older texts that I encountered where, um, Things about Polynesians were were being written down, and the Polynesian race um, was being described by white social scientists. Um, and so, yeah, sort of that's that that's where the book bubbled up from.
0: I guess some people would be tempted to say, "Well, this nineteenth century racial theory that was then, but now we know better, and now social scientists." And others don't do that anymore. But your your book shows that there's a lot of consistency and continuity between those works that some people might think outdated, and um, contemporary projects like genetics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and so yeah, my book is really broad, and um, I think sometimes maybe historians, in particular, um, kind of question. Um, like the scope of it, um, we, for for some historians who are more used to kind of dealing like with in detail with very discrete historical periods, um, but my training is in ethnic studies, uh, which is you know an interdisciplinary field, and you know maybe because um, you know the, the as I said, a lot of my interest in this topic is is personal or you know tied to my political commitments. As a Native Hawaiian person, and so to me, it was really important to not just look at the his, these historical scientific studies, like, um, and then be like, okay, that was then, and um, that was unfortunate, but um, we've moved on. We've moved on, um, but instead, really try to grapple with the ways that the logic that was produced in this older racial science um, still continues to be very much alive for and have real consequences for native Hawaiian and other indigenous people. And so um, my argument isn't that like all the things that, you know, and a eugenicist would have believed in the 1920s is exactly the same as, you know, what's, what's accepted in anthropology today, of course. Um, But that um, even as anthropology and other social sciences have, you know, disavowed many of the more explicitly racist um, I- ideologies that a lot of the maybe more nuanced or complicated um, ideas that, was, that were produced in the older racial science continues to go uncontested. And so uh, that was, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at um, in, in the broad scope of the book.
0: One of the things I, I liked about the book was the way in which you showed that there were continuities through transformation that even as these fields changed um, there you could still find things that had sort of stayed the same and um, uh, for people who haven't had a chance to read the book there's there's uh, uh, discussions of uh, Hawaiians as a as a beautiful race of people who have sort of uh, mixed in this way. You can probably imitate these guys a lot better than me. Um, from from Spencer Wells, a geneticist, I guess, uh, from the 20th century. And then you also find these other texts from much, much early. And some of the sentences are like exactly the same. I mean, it's really not a stretch to see that, that even if their explicit scientific content may have shifted, that a lot of the attitude and the context, I mean, it's really remarkable how it jumps out at you.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, yeah, I think that's that's what I hope the book does is kinda allows people to see some of those continuities that we we didn wouldn't really expect them to be so blatantly similar, but they are and it's disturbing, right?
0: Yeah. It's, it's quite something. (laughs) I, as, as a settler living in Hawaii, I I think a lot about these issues and, um, yeah, it is sometimes remarkable to see this discourse pop up in all kinds of places. Um, the, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. We're going to say something.
1: Oh no. Yeah. Just kind of affirming and, you know, recognizing your experience.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the title of the book is Possessing Polynesians, and you, you talk about this um, mechanism or this trope that circulates in all this literature called uh, whiteness by possession. Or uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what possessing Polynesians means and what, uh, what this concept of possessive whiteness is? This is not a, a book about explicit chattel slavery. So possessing Polynesians, that's a, something slightly more complicated than than just physically owning people,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, um, so so yeah, the concept is it it does come out of um, the history of social science and the ways that white social scientists wrote about indigenous people of the Pacific um, from from really some of the earliest encounters between Europeans and indigenous Pacific Islanders. And it, it really all goes back to the ways that Europeans, early European um, so-called explorers, um, when they encountered the Pacific and Pacific peoples, they're, they gradually became to build up this representation of Polynesians as almost white. Um, and that's, it, that was in very clear distinction to Melanesians who were, um, in the, in the eyes of Europeans, black. And that's, that's, as many anthropologists of the Pacific, um, know that's reflected in the name of Melanesia, which Mela means, Mela means, um, black. Right. And so, so yeah, so my book, the first half of the book really grapples with, um, that the history of that racial split that Europeans saw in the Pacific and um, the idea of possession through whiteness um, that I developed throughout the book. it It's really it's really trying to grapple with the ways that European like being being placed in proximity to whiteness by Europeans um, was not like a, a liberatory um, thing. Right. Right. Um, even as it's not the same as kind of sometimes the more explicit racism towards Melanesian people. Um, but the the proximity to whiteness um, that European settlers um, developed into this logic in Polynesia was a way for them to say that there was some kind of relationship or affinity between white settlers and Polynesian people. and. Um, Many times that logic would be developed in such a way that it allowed white settlers to claim their own kind of indigeneity to Polynesia, because in this somewhat (laughs) twisted logic, um, if Polynesians were white or through the various different social scientists, um, some claimed that Polynesians were ancestrally Aryan, like they had come from northern India, um, they had gone east from northern India, whereas Europeans had gone west. And so, therefore, there was some, like, very distant, um, you know, real ancestry that uh, Europeans and Polynesians shared. Um, or later, physical anthropologists would kind of measure physical features of Polynesians and compare them to other races. And based on those comparisons, claim that um that Polynesians were like almost like so close, almost Caucasian, right? And so, um, the and all those kind of twisted logics um, about placing po- po- Polynesians in proximity to whiteness. What I what I'm arguing is that it's not it, it wasn't just kind of a softer racism or anything. It was actually a really important logic to settler colonialism because again, it allowed it allowed white people in Polynesia to, um, kind of claim state their own forms of belonging to Polynesian land, Polynesian resources, and even to some extent, Polynesian identity. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's basically the idea behind, um, possession through whiteness and, um, Yeah, what I what I try to do is uh, excavate how that logic developed in the social science. But then, yeah, in the second half of the book, look at how that logic kind of continues to operate today, even if in different different forms.
0: So can you give me an example um, from the book of how it is that Polynesians being almost white sort of turned white people Polynesian? uh it's a kind of a logical move which i think might seem unintuitive to some people can you maybe give us a concrete example to help help flesh that out a little bit
1: sure um let's see so i'm trying to find a, think of a really good one um so i'm
0: just trying so, to i'm sorry go ahead
1: oh yeah um so like in the in the first chapter, one of the writers that I look at, um, let's see, um, John Dunmore Lang, um, he talks a lot about how, um, Polynesians kind of used to be this grand, um, civilization, but that they had kind of degenerated from their heights and that, um, and through that kind of, um, description of Polynesians um, he he really evoked um, ancient Greece and Rome and even Egypt and so um, and if so people are f- probably familiar today with how um, kind of Greek mythology or Roman mythology is kind of seen as this heritage of, of Europe even even though you know um, you know both <laughs> at the time that um, the Roman and Greek empires were powerful, they were fighting powers in Europe, right? So um, other powers in Europe. And so there's a way that um, sometimes Europeans could kind of appropriate other people's histories as their own, even if um, the actual lineage was was not that clear, right? And so, um, what I'm arguing is that um, people like Lang were doing the same with Polynesians. And and he even would argue that um, Polynesians might have been ancient Romans who had traveled West, right? And so um, in the same way that um, some Europeans might see like Greek mythology as part of their heritage, even if they're not Greek, um, that was kind of a similar thing that um, at least early white settlers um, in the Pacific were were also claiming um, in terms of Polynesia. Um, yeah, does, is that a helpful example?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you think about people living in Britain or France who who think of their being or America or anywhere, but but just to keep the target on Europe, you know, no. the, they they're not actually from. The Middle East, but they think of themselves as the inheritors of a Jewish tradition and then a Christian tradition, even though really, I mean, they're not from that place. It, they, it's, it's, they consider it to be part of their heritage and they've, they've taken up, they've built a historical narrative about how all the stuff that happened over there was kind of leading up to them. And I guess okay. in the same way, um, settlers who moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand or Hawaii um, can see themselves as sort of the next stage of history, maybe like, in a in a better position to preserve Hawaiian culture than Hawaiians themselves could. I feel like maybe that's something I've heard people say the missionaries could preserve Hawaiian culture through writing in a way that Hawaiians couldn't, maybe something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what a lot of these um, early White settlers were were saying right that um, um, it wasn't that they came to Polynesia and were immediately um, you know wowed by by the civilization there right because they they actually they didn't consider Hawaiians or other Polynesians civilized exactly right and so what they were saying is that well you're not really civilized but because we might share this ancient lineage. Um, we kind of see you as redeemable and um, we hope that through uh, white settlement of the Pacific that you know we're gonna help bring rise you back bring you back up into the heights of civilization that you your ancient ancestors might have once known right um, mm. and yeah and so the this whole the idea of that of polynesians being somewhat white it was never. Um, even as it might be a little more complicated than explicit racism, it it was it was certainly racist. Right? It was certainly um, it 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 was a kind of com- again a kind of convoluted logic, but it it allowed white settlers to dismiss like actual um, indigenous people um, at the time, um, but kind of draw this this larger. Ancient history to justify their own settlement.
0: Yeah. I guess um the downside of being labeled Melanesian was that you were sort of considered permanently uncivilizable for quite a good period of time. I mean, that's that's not right. true. There were also missionary endeavors over there. But there was a sure. there was a there was a lot of explicit racism and race separation, whereas um I guess some people might think, well, the good news for Polynesians is they're close enough to white people that that they get to become like white people. But then many Polynesians would probably say, actually, we don't really necessarily see that as good news, right?
1: right <laughs> There's downsides
0: exactly. to that as well.
1: Exactly, and um, and I think it's even a little more complicated than that. And um, although, um, yeah, I'm I'm not a scholar of Melanesia, um, and so yeah, folks like you would probably have a lot more d- depth and understanding of all the nuances there. Um, but I do think at least as it, but I do think it's so important to know about the ways that the idea of a white Polynesia were, was was absolutely formed in, in, in distinction to a black Melanesia. Um, and, the, and so the ways that this idea of possession through whiteness um, Anti-blackness was always a really important part of it, um, even if, even if um, white settlers had this idea that Polynesians were kind of white or could be white. Um, there was always that ideology was always, you know, shaped in really important ways by an anti-blackness um, that that allowed that would allow white settlers to be anti-Black, um, towards Polynesians too. Um, because that, again, the idea was that like, oh, maybe your ancient ancestors were white, but like you today, the the Polynesian person I'm looking at, you're Black, right? And, um, and so that, that still allowed a lot of, um, explicit racism towards Polynesians as well. Um, but I think, but I think it's so important to, um, You know, I think sometimes um, our theories of colonialism and decolonization haven't always um, grappled enough with um, just the kind of nuances and complications of white supremacy and and anti-Blackness. And so I hope my book is, um, you know, helping to to start um, scholars who work on the Pacific um, to think a little more deeply and to give us more Um, nuanced um, understandings of how, how those things work out.
0: Yeah. You make that point in the book multiple times and and I appreciated it. It's, it's useful to be reminded of how anti-Black racism is at play in uh, Hawaii or uh, other Pacific islands, even if there are not a lot of Black people to be the subject to that racism that It's right. still always there in the background, and um, in the Commonwealth, it takes a slightly different form. But in Hawaii, which a lot of the chapters are about, you know, the it, I think you really make a valuable point that even though African Americans might not be there, the, all of the debates and all of the discussion are constantly being had with reference to things that are happening on the mainland, and um, and that that anti-blackness is essentially a part of it. It's difficult to see when you live in a place. Where um, you you don't un- you don't see what's going on in the mainland, you don't have a sense of how that history has affected you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, but I think it kind of helps explain. Um, maybe one example that I use a lot, especially when I'm teaching undergrads, is um, you know the Hawaiian monarchy. Um, in some ways, you know, they were really um, recognizably modern, right? And they did a lot to um, shape. Um, Hawaii as a modern nation state and get it recognized by other European powers and um, and in some ways um, you know that that recognition um, was not unrelated to the ideas that Europeans had about uh, Polynesians being almost white right um, and we could talk a little bit more about Kalakaua in relation to that but but th- the other thing I, I what I So I talked to my undergrads about that, but I also talked to them about um, the many, many racist political cartoons that were published about
0: Kalakaua
1: mm-hmm. and um, Lilio Kalani, um, you know, in the lead up to the overthrow and during the annexation where um, Kalakaua and uh, Lilio Kalani are, you know, very explicitly depicted as with all the tropes of um, pickaninnies or... Um, they're they often have like um feathers that are likening them to native americans and um and and so the yeah the thing is that the the anti-blackness is always there right and so i think what what generated um you know over a century of a lot of social scientists being so fascinated with um This idea that Polynesians could be white or were used to be white, um, it was really generated in some ways, I think, by this anxiety over whether Indigenous people in the Pacific were white or black, right? And um, and and so yeah, I think that really comes to the surface when you um, see, on the one hand, the Hawaiian monarchy um, doing everything in its power to you know, adopt the dress and mannerisms of, you know, European monarchs. And then um, at the very same time, um, you know, that that was never enough for um, certain white viewers who, um, you know, would always see them as uncivilized heathens, um, you know, unfit for to rule. Um, Yeah.
0: You know, so can I ask you a little bit little bit about this? There have been some scholars who have argued that we overlook the role of rank and class in 19th century colonialism. So David Canadine, for example, has this book called Ornamentalism, where he talks about the way in which European royalty were happy to recognize monarchs from foreign countries as monarchs, as royalties, sort of possibly regardless of their racial status or Think it's Brian Richardson who wrote *Longitude* and *Empire*, who says, when Cook was exploring, he would sort of get off of the boat and say, "Take me to your leader." And if people mm-hmm. had a leader, then he was like, "Okay, you guys are now officially on this rung of civilization." Mm-hmm. And um, C- Canadine has this story about, I guess it's Kamehameha II visiting London mm-hmm. and going to a dinner with the Prince of Wales and being s- sitting right next to the prince. And then I guess, um, one of the prince's Prussian relatives, I might be the future Wilhelm II, I forget, objects and says, why are you seating this guy from Hawaii at the, at the place of honor? And the prince says, well, he's a king and you're just a prince. And so therefore he should be sitting here. And if he's not a king, then he's just an N word. And so then obviously shouldn't even be in the room. So there is this weird, the, the story is quite a bit more graphic in the original telling, but there's this, there's a sense in which people were kind of happy to deal with rank and, but then also there was this racial logic that, that, that sort of disqualified people. Do you think? Um, I, I always worry as an American that, that we think too much about race on the one hand, it's sort of impossible as an American to not think enough about it. I mean, it's not a minor factor in our history, but working with my Australian colleagues and some other colleagues in other countries, I always sort of think, you know, are we missing class a little bit here too when it comes to how these people were thinking about these things? I don't know. You don't have to have an answer for that. I just it's something that I often think about.
1: Sure, um, yeah, I guess I would argue that you know I don't think any of us thinks about race enough, um, or <laughs> I think there's. I just think there's there's so much. Um, at least, you know, in in mainstream um, America, but but also in every country in the world, um, where where issues are clearly racial, um, but a lot of people don't recognize it or don't have the language to analyze it and critique it, and so um, I guess I guess I, I do think sometimes. Um, the way that race is, is analyzed in the U S can be limiting and it's not appropriate to um, kind of export the kind of sometimes bounded ways that people talk about race as um, within the U S to other places where, um, where there's a different context. Right. But, um, but I think my book tries to argue kind of really deeply that um, issues of anti-Blackness are global, right? And, um, and you know, that's, I think that's clear in a lot of ways, but especially because of the the source materials that I looked at in the the historical social science that um, that is really placing Hawaii within this larger, within Polynesia for one, but within the Pacific and kind of the global European, imaginary about non-European people. And so I do think sometimes Hawaii, um, when we only try to understand Hawaii through an American racial lens with um, sometimes they're kind of referred to as like the four food groups of African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, um, and uh, Latinx people. um, I mean, that food group model is kind of roundly um, critiqued um, in ethnic studies for good reason. Um, but but I th- what I hope my book does is really show how, you know, how inappropriate that model is for Hawaii in particular, because Hawaii is, um, you know, always the ideas about race that um, colonialism brought to Hawaii were always more global than just an American one. Um,
0: One of the things that you talk about is the way in which Pacific Islanders can internalize these views about race in a lot of ways and and how they deal with them. Um, And that's, I feel like that's kind of the the second half of the book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? I certainly know that in the study uh, of sort of the Polynesia-Melanesia distinction, a couple of authors have written in the way about the way in which this anti-black racism can make Polynesians look down on Melanesians as less civilized and, and less white. I've, I've certainly experienced that at different points in my career myself. Can you tell me a little bit about what's, what's going on with with how people get those models inside of them and become kind of possessed by them?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think, I think that's a really important um Function um, or process of colonialism, right, in a lot of different contexts, is that um, it's not just that it imposes this um, racial hierarchy on people, but it actually, um, you know, gets people to buy into it even when the hierarchy is stacked against themselves. And so um, I think that's one of the most insidious and therefore sometimes the hardest parts of colonialism to decolonize. Um, and I think that's why a lot of um, scholars in indigenous studies, you know, write so much and um, urgently about um, things like the history of boarding schools um, and you know other really violent um, projects of assimilation that um, that were devastating in a lot of ways. But one of the ways is that it it kind of inculcated, um, colonial ideas into Native people themselves. And um, yeah, and so my book, um, I try to I try to deal with the very complicated nature of that um, by looking at a couple different cases. Um, and so, for example, let's go back to talking about Plague like Quantum. Um, one of the um, chapters in the second half of the book looks at this um, legal case um, where a group of five Native Hawaiian men um, sued the state um, alleging that um, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, a couple of their programs were benefiting Native Hawaiians um, who who didn't have a 50% blood quantum, right? And so, and we don't have to get into all the legal details of, of the um, Hawaiian Homes Commission Act, but um, but basically they were, um, they claimed that they were, they and their families, um, had 50% or more and that their interests were being diluted by, um, the office of Hawaiian affairs, allowing, um, native Hawaiians who didn't have that much of quantum to benefit from their programs. Um, and so I think that's, for me, that's just like one, um, example of the ways that this kind of racial thinking about like quantum gets internalized, um, within our communities is, um, but I, which is really, which can be really devastating to see, right. Um, for many reasons, but, um, but because in a, in a lot of maybe most native Hawaiian families, um, you know, th- people have different blood quantums, right. Because, because it's this made up metric anyway, but um, but when people kind of double down on that uh, that as a hallmark of how how Hawaiian you are, um, it's really devastating because you can see within families it divides them right um, and I think again this that but so what what I try to talk about with that case in the book is that you know it's It's not just like these individual men who are mean and bad, right, but that this is kind of how colonialism works and and in particular this is how that idea of possession through rightness works is that people buy into it and perpetuate it and um and I think what's important is i mean to critique those men, um, but to not only critique those men, but to critique the larger system that allows blood quantum to remain in place. Um, and so, yeah, that's one example um, that I talk about. Um,
0: yeah. So in, in this case, just to spell it out for people, I'm always afraid, uh, when I talk about stuff that's got to do with Hawaii or my specialty, I kind of slip into inside baseball here. Um, so the Office of Hawaiian Affairs is basically a government organ for distributing. I think Kawanui calls it like racialized welfare. If you if you have a certain amount of so-called Hawaiian blood, then you are entitled to one level of benefit. And then if you have more over f- what they call fifty percent Hawaiian blood, is that right? Then you're entitled to an additional level of benefits and all of this i mean one of the great ironies of this blood quantum idea uh is that you cannot actually check anyone's blood for hawaiianness because it doesn't have any there's no biological basis for this there's no hawaiian particle in people's blood so mm-hmm. right i mean i yes i this will drive me nuts i will talk about it at a, it's such terrible social science um so in yeah, in this so, case
1: uh um, i just um amend that. So the office of Hawaiian affairs, um, yeah, they, so they do, um, this and they were set up, um, as part of the, when Hawaii became a state and, um, when, um, there was a a new constitutional convention, I believe in the seventies. Um, and there was some recognition that the state, um, had some obligations to, um, you know, take care of Native Hawaiians, um, because a lot of, um, the land that formerly belonged to the Hawaiian monarchy, um, you know, had been seized by the, the men who overthrew the Hawaiian kingdom and then ran the territory of Hawaii and then, um, yeah, so there, you know, with statehood, there was some recognition that um, the state government had an obligation to do more, to serve Native Hawaiians. And that's what that office is supposed to do. Um, but, um, yeah, but yeah, because of this different legislation from the nineteen from 1920, the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act, um, that's the act that enshrined the blood quantum. Um, that it says, officially it says... Hawaiians should have uh, no less than one half part. Um, and so that kind of in, more informally um, has become 50%. Um, but but partly, and so those men who sued Oha um, because they weren't, um, because they alleged that they weren't serving only Native Hawaiians with the proper blood quantum, their case was ac- actually dismissed because um, because OHA didn't, you know, legally they didn't actually have to only serve people with 50% black quantum. It's only the Hawaiian homesteads, um, um, things that are relating to the Hawaiian homesteads that requires black quantum um, in that way. Um, But yeah, that might be getting too much into the weeds, but (laughs) I'm just, well, I think it's, I think it's worth, yeah,
0: it's, it's worth pointing out that, that, um, this is another one of these examples where you make where the government is kind of giving in one sense, but then in order to receive, you have to buy into a form of knowledge, which in a more fundamental way gives epistemic authority to biologists and scientists, right? Or a sort right. of Western frame of, of biology. And that that's sort of the key point. It, it looks like a form of reconciliation or uh, or social justice, but it's it's based on these deeper epistemic um, uh, sets of issues and which are undemocratic and that they don't give Hawaiians a chance to 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 define themselves
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: yeah and in and in this case, even though these men were um, their 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 suit was not successful the The thing and tell me if i'm if I'm wrong here, the issue is not that they're they're bad people or they're mean hearted, but they had internalized this model of what counts as Hawaiian, which got to the point where they were suing other Hawaiians for not having the right amount of blood, and that the the fact that they had internalized that framework that was that's what's so distressing, right
1: yeah, yeah, and i think I think it also just kind of shows that you know, Native Hawaiians don't have a lot of avenues to, in which to, you know, decide these, like, um, membership requirements on their own terms, right? And so I think another reason why um, they were suing the Office of Hawaiian Affairs is just, um, like, to, you know, try to, like, take some control over the ways that the state, um, you know, imposes blood quantum um but but yeah the way that they did it was um kind of just doubled down on on the violence of blood quantum but Mm -hmm. um but i think to me um it's also important to kind of notice that also the state didn't decide to like do away with blood quantum right so they they still they're still the arbiter of blood quantum Um, and that you know and so, yeah, just it shows that kind of our efforts at decolonization um, have to have to be so multifaceted, right? They have to be able to deal with like these real legal problems, um, but like, but also address the ways that our own people in our own communities, um, you know, have have internalized these really problematic ideas and. Um, and I think especially coming from like a indigenous feminist perspective, it's really important that you know whatever forms of decolonization that we're working towards um, do not include um, these you know hetero patriarchal um and racist ideas of who we are
0: right you and and you talk a lot in this book about this concept of regenerative refusal as as a way of doing that. Can you tell me a little bit about what regenerative refusal is and how it's sort of a way forward possibly?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, in the book, I talk about regenerative refusal as just a kind of a, a way to recognize um, and analyze uh, some of the actions that... Um, Native Hawaiians and other Polynesians and other Indigenous people take, um, you know, to try to, um, you know, both kind of stop colonialism and enact something different. And um, and so, I so in that chapter that I that I look at those men who sued the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, um, you know, I analyze what they did, but then I also analyze. Um, the testimonies of other Native Hawaiians who spoke um, in 2014 um, during um, these hearings that the federal government held about the possibility of uh, federally recognizing Native Hawaiians, and and that's that's kind of a whole other um, uh, quagmire to explain. But um, but basically, Native Hawaiians um, until this process started were not like understood legally in the same terms as, as some Native American tribes who have federal recognition and therefore have, um, might have a, fe- a tribal government and a, a tribal reservation. Um, and so some Native Hawaiians had for a long time um, pushed to have their status be more um, equal to Native American federally recognized tribes. Um, and so in 2014, the um, the Department of Interior came and held these hearings um, with the public to ask if Native Hawaiians wanted federal recognition. And um, at almost every hearing, like over, by my understanding, at least like 90% of the Native Hawaiians who spoke um, said, no, we don't want federal recognition. Like, you should go back to Washington and send the Department of State because Native Hawaiians, you know, have a right to their own nation, and we don't want to be recognized as a nation within a nation. Um, and you know, the the testimonies um, they're really moving and um, complex, and um, and so I, I look at just a couple of them that talk more explicitly about blood quantum as kind of a foil to the ways that blood con- blood blood quantum was um, invoked in that legal case, and. And and so I think what what those testimonies do do is that they're regenerative uh, refusals in the sense that you know they're very clearly saying no to um, the kinds of recognition that the state was offering to Native Hawaiians, um, but that they're also kind of opening up this space for Native Hawaiians to think differently and think. Um, think about what they wanted right and not just and so it's the no I think in a lot of the popular mainstream coverage of those hearings in 2014 um the the news people were often like oh native Hawaiians are so mean and like they're being so rude to these um department of interior officials um and I think I think that was a real shame. Uh, I mean, that was kind of a racist um, coverage of, of the testimonies. Um, but also I think it really missed the ways that people were, you know, theorizing and enacting um, the kinds of nationhood that they wanted, right? And so it's not, so to me, regenerative refusals was a just a kind of analytic way to um, point out that, Often when Native people say no to something, um, they're understood as being ungrateful or unruly or, um, you know, unintelligent because they they seem to be opting out of something that, even if it's kind of recognizably not the perfect solution, um, uh, other more moderates might say, well, this is the best that you can get, so... Um you know, how can you say no to this? Um, and so, but I think, you know, especially those testimonies show um, the no the no is opening up this whole different world for people, right? It's and it might not be recognizable in terms of the state. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I guess that's for me, it was really important to try to show that like no is never just, um, you know, a disengagement. Um, it's, it's actually a different form of engagement.
0: Yeah. I guess a lot of people would maybe look at someone saying, oh, we don't want to be federally recognized. We want to restore the monarchy or restore the Hawaiian kingdom. A lot of people would say, you know, you're crazy. You're an extremist that's not effective politics. Real politics is working within the system to get what you can in situations when it's possible and then keep pushing. But, but, uh, and, and we're not going to have a monarchy. That's a pipe dream, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but you're saying that actually in that moment of saying, no, we don't want to play this game. People are creating another form of life, uh, another way of being, um, which is full of different, um, I want to start dripping into technical language here. It has a different feeling, uh, a spatio-temporal feeling, a set of affects and a set of qualities, which is itself uh, sort of a, a new and empowering way of being. Something, something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, and I think you know there there are many Native Hawaiians who are um, of that more pragmatic mind, right, and who argue that. Yeah, um, federal recognition, which actually, you know, did pass, um, two years later, um, despite the, the kind of overwhelming, um, protest of many of the people who spoke at those, um, at those hearings, um, many Native Hawaiians, um, still kind of celebrated that, uh, that federal recognition be- precisely because they thought, um, or maybe still think um, that that pragmatically that's that's the best we can get, and that um, they wanted to see something within their lifetime that um, would bring some measure of justice right and and you know I think I think that's understandable right in a lot of ways but but I think if that's the only discourse, you know that's if that's the only kind of imagination that we're fostering within our communities and that's um you know it's so impoverished right to to only be able to think with the terms of the occupying state um and so yeah i think um with those testimonies um even as um, ultimately they didn't change the outcome um in in terms of what the state did um they were still kind of really powerful um, points of connection for Native Hawaiian people, and um, and I think we 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 see we have seen similar um, points of connection and real hope and excitement in in the in the ways that uh, people have pr- stood up to protect Mauna Kea as well, um, and that's another kind of flashpoint where. Um, some people, including some Native Hawaiians, think um, you know that it's a pipe dream to try to stop um, these powerful corporations from you know building the thirty-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. But um, but I think you know it's it's still not being built, <laughs> and um, the the kinds of the forms of social and um, intellectual life that were fostered at Kea over the last year um were so exciting and, and vital and um yeah
0: yeah I think it's I didn't at all read your book as a, a criticism of more mainstream politics, but uh well I suppose it, it was critical of a lot, but um mm-hmm. but it, not necessarily a, a critical of a sort of a more mainstream accommodationist Hawaiian politics so much as uh insistence on recognizing as a form of politics and a positive project voices which might otherwise be considered marginal or or safe to write off. And I thought that that was very interesting, having having met people from those communities. Many of them are working class. They, they haven't been to college. They're not good at performing with a certain kind of cultural capital that some other people might be better at performing at. Um, and, uh, I, th- I thought being able to describe that in a way that is accessible to sort of the highbrow types was, was very useful. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I could talk a lot more about this and, uh, Mauna Kea, maybe we could talk just a little bit more of, about Mauna Kea, just a few more minutes before we wrap up. So this, this was a case in which, um, uh, uh, the University of Hawaii, my employer, as well as other people, wanted to build a large telescope on top of a mountain, which many people believed was sacred. That's the short version of it. And there was a an occupation and a guardianship of the mountain. Um, and we just had the one year anniversary, right?
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. Of the most recent um, occupation, um, or yeah, the um, yeah last year was kind of a, a one of one of the flashpoints in in the history of Mauna Kea, um, there was there were there was a lot of organizing, um, also in uh, 2015, um, but also going as, as far back as the 1960s and 70s when the first telescopes were built on Mauna Kea.
0: Right. Thank you for that correction. So this is the most in a in a history of of protests uh, in this regard. And so you, you see this as another example of regenerative refusal and one which in this case shows the the very positive potential, how how this is not merely a, a project of creating a community in an otherwise occupied place, but this is something where that energy from that space of refusal actually has real s- strong sort of um, politics with a capital P policy outcomes in the sense that there's no telescope up there.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I should say like, I'm not directly involved with the organizing at Mauna Kea and there are a lot of really amazing Hawaiian scholars and activists who are more appropriate to talk about Mauna Kea, but, but I do, um, mention Mauna Kea in my book. Um, and this was before the most recent, um, you know, it was, it had to be turned in before <laughs> the most recent, um, occupation that started last year. But, um, but I talk about it, um, just because it kind of all the broader issues, um, that I talk about in the book regarding science and, um, possession and discourses about, um, you know, universality where, um, the presumption is always that, um, so-called science, you know, benefits all mankind, um, that kind of discourse, um, Is so present with Monica and and it it was so present in the historical social science um, um, studies that I, that I looked at as well. And so, um, yeah. And I, and so I think, I think what, you know, one of the many things we can learn from, from all the kiai or the protectors that um, have worked so tireless, tireless, tirelessly um, to defend um, Mauna Kea, um, is that you know discourses um, proclaiming you know benefit to all people are should always be a little suspect, right, or a mm-hmm. lot suspect, and um, the ways that Native Hawaiians are written out of of, of who, who benefits, um, um, from, from the, from the telescope, you know, um, I think that a lot of the, the people involved with protecting Mauna Kea just have been so smart and eloquent and, um, crucial in the, in showing how, you know, the telescope was, would not actually benefit most people, um, even if it it would have this huge benefit to some astronomers, right? Um, but that it poses a, a threat to the water aquifer for the whole island of um, Hawaii, um, and and so there are real environmental impacts that, um, you know, are irrespective of the actual cultural impacts for Native Hawaiians as well, and so again you know, I think what, you know, what I try to get at in the book with the ideas of possession through whiteness is that, you know, white, white settlers are kind of a white mainstream. Um, they, there's a really deep history, um, to the, the ways that they claim belonging or, um, claim control to, um, to places in Hawaii and other parts of Polynesia and, um, you know, Native Hawaiians and other Indigenous people, you know, f- you know, since the invent of colonialism have had to figure out ways to um, speak back to that kind of logic and to try to disrupt it. Or, um, you know, I, and, and I think that's the ways that the Kia'i at Mauna have have done so by, um, you know, insisting, that protecting Mauna Kea is, is not just for Native Hawaiians but for everyone, and um, especially in this last year, um, by you know setting up a whole community there um, where people um, could have health care, could be fed, um, could go to university, right? That they were holding classes, um, sometimes like you know, very <laughs> several classes a day. Um, I think that was just like a um one kind of powerful example of um yeah, how how native Hawaiians were thinking differently and um and, and engaging in decolonization in a way that really disrupted um a kind of white possessive logic of, of land.
0: Yeah. I was I was struck um when the telescope was being built that that one of the one of the things I heard more than once was, well, Um, Polynesians have always been astronomers. It's part of your ancient wayfaring tradition. And so your Um, heritage is actually our heritage. And that's why we're building the telescope.
1: Right. And that, um, yeah, as we've talked about, that logic comes straight out of the, um, you know, the Aryan and eugenicist studies um, from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And, And so it's, it's really that, that kind of claim, um, kind of appropriative claim, um, that is still, it's just, it's so kind of enraging to see how, how much life it still has today. Right. Um,
0: yeah, well, and I think the value of the book is that it, it's kind of a book. It's a, it's a book about decolonization that has its focus on white people. Um, although there's actually quite a lot in the second half, and particularly we did not get a chance to talk about about Pacific artists but but once you see that mechanism, then you can start seeing it crop up and up again. So you guys have always been astronomers, but I'm sure if you were to pick up an astronomy book it would say astronomy is the perfect form of knowledge of the stars, and we don't do astrology or other imperfect forms you know imperfect cultural forms that we've replaced. So again, it's always that that logic of acknowledging, but then also sort of adopting and then purifying.
1: Right, and I mean, for many reasons that that kind of logic is um, is is so enraging. But um, and for another reason is just because it was only in, it was as late as the seventies that many people um, kind of main in mainstream science or just. Uh, mainstream culture, um, believe that the Pacific had been settled by random drift and not by purposeful navigation by Polynesians. And so, um, yeah, to kind of see a mainstream science, like suddenly, um, kind of recognize that Polynesians are astronomers for the purpose of allowing them to take over land in Polynesia, um, it's just you know it just kind of compounds the um well we weren't astronomers until um you need you need to, our land to build for astronomy
0: yeah it also is a very very selective it's such an impoverished understanding of the incredible number of skills that voyagers need to have in order to make those voyagers i mean there's so much more than just astronomers yeah absolutely yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, all of that and that last little bit on Mauna Kea. I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm going to let you go. But can you tell me now that this book is out the door, do you have another project you're working on?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. Um, so yeah, the, my second book is looking at the history of um, territorial institutions in Hawaii, um, mostly focusing on the care and discipline of children. And so I look at uh, the history of um, the territorial, um, there's, there was a, a school for girls and a school for boys, um, as well as some private institutions, um, such as um, the Salvation Army also ran a school for girls and boys. Um, and overall, I'm, I'm looking at the history of those institutions, um, you know, which, um, we're not exclusively um, caring for or disciplining Native Hawaiians, but Native Hawaiians were the majority of the populations at those institutions, um, along with um, uh, a small number of Asian Asian Americans. And so I'm interested in how um, at both the state and private level, these institutions are um, were enacting, you know kind of, a forced assimilation um, of Native Hawaiians um, into as Hawaii became a territory and then a state, um, very gendered ideas of, of what um, young Native Hawaiian
0: men and women should be. Um, yeah, it's,
1: yeah, I, I could go on, but I'll just end, end with that.
0: Well, it sounds like a great project and an, an important one too. So I, I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Um, And thanks for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks, Alex.